Thank you for downloading this episode of A History of the Classical World in a Hundred Objects. We're continuing this week with the 5th century BCE, the age of Athenian ascendancy, empire building and the dawn of democracy, as well as a period of political intrigue and long drawn out conflict between the various city-states that formed the political, social and cultural structure of classical Greece. Today, however, instead of looking at objects that tell us about the working of 5th century politics, law and order or war, all of which we'll be covering in the next week, we're going to be focusing on one of the most prolific and well-known products of classical Greece, art. Doriphoros, Roman copy of a Greek original, found in Pompeii, Italy. Copy, 1st century BCE, original, circa 450 BCE. Today's object is perhaps one of the most famous objects to survive from the ancient Greek world. Standing just over two metres tall, it's a statue of a man carved out of marble. He's entirely nude and stands with his weight on his right leg, his left leg relaxed, his foot brushing the floor behind him. His right arm hangs by his side. His left is raised, the fingers curled around an object that isn't there. In fact, he would originally have held a spear, and it is that which gives the statue its name, Doriphoros, which in ancient Greek means spear-carrier. His torso is broad and well-muscled, and his head turns slightly to the right, his eyes gazing off as if into the far distance, his mouth soft, the hair on his head tousled and curling around his ears. Although the statue described here, and pictured on my website and on Twitter, is now housed in the National Archaeological Museum in Naples, Italy, and is perhaps the most well-known of its type, it's one of many similar Doriferos statues found all over the Roman world, ranging from full-sized statues to small figurines. And yet, there's a paradox at its very heart, which enshrines the many complexities of studying the ancient world through objects. The first clue to the laird story of the Doriferos is in the strange tree-like object that appears to protrude from the statue's right thigh all the way to the ground, as well as the rectangular brace joining the right wrist to the figure's waist. These are, in fact, supports that were added in order to prop up the heavy marble and prevent it from breaking or falling over. They tell us something very important, that this statue wasn't originally intended to be sculpted this way, and that modifications had to be made to adapt to the material of marble. There was, in fact, probably an original sculpture, of which this is just a copy, and the original material for that first statue was most likely bronze, a much lighter sculptural medium that is able to stand unsupported in ways that marble cannot. We do, in fact, know that 
As the hints provided by this statue suggest, this is a Roman copy of a much older Greek original. The Greek original, which was cast in bronze, no longer survives. But we know plenty about it from written sources, as well as the many Roman copies that remain. It was made by Polykleitos, one of the most important Greek sculptors of the 5th century BCE. In fact, his name, Polykleitos, means much renowned in ancient Greek. Polykleitos was probably from Sicyon or Argos in the northern Peloponnese and worked only in metal, producing sculptures of heroes, gods and victorious athletes, of which the Doryphoros was his most famous work. His sculpture was based on a rule or canon in ancient Greek, the source of the modern word canon and canonical, which specified the principles and proportions for sculpting the human body. A later historian mentions a saying of Polykleitos that perfection comes about little by little, paramikron in Greek, through many numbers. There have been attempts since at reconstructing the canon of Polykleitos to varying degrees of success. What is clear, though, is that it was centred around the symmetria or symmetry, of different parts of the human body to each other. Each part was related to the other so that, for example, the little finger of the hand was always in the same ratio to the breadth of the palm, the palm to the forearm, the forearm to the chest, and so on, creating a system of idealised mathematical proportions and balance in the representation of the human body. Another important revolution made by Polykleitos was the contrapposto stance, with the weight leaning into one leg to create an offset yet symmetrically balanced S-curve in the human figure. The later Roman writer and historian Pliny wrote of Polykleitos in his Natural History, Polycleitus of Sicyon, a pupil of Hagaladas, made a Doryphorus, a virile-looking boy. He also made a statue that artists call the canon, and from which they derive the principles of their art, as if from a law of some kind, and he alone of men is deemed to have rendered art itself in a work of art. He is deemed to have perfected this science and to have refined the art of metalwork, just as Phidias, the famous Athenian sculptor, had revealed its possibilities. It was strictly his invention to have his statues throw their weight onto one leg. Whether the copies we have of the Doryphoros preserve Polykleitos's canon accurately, we cannot be sure. But there is a second complexity to this particular statue in the Naples Archaeological Museum, which we can't afford to ignore. As one of my colleagues, a historian of ancient art and archaeology, recently pointed out to me when we were discussing the history of the classical world in a hundred objects series, one of the most important elements in the study of ancient objects is their context. In the case of this statue, it is almost always described as having been found in Pompeii, the ancient Roman city which was buried beneath the ash in the eruption of Vesuvius in 79 CE. But as a recent scholar of the Doryphoros statues has pointed out, it is in fact very difficult to say with certainty whether the Naples Doryphoros, known as Naples 6011, really did come from Pompeii or not. The only thing we have to go on, in fact, are some excavation notes from the early excavations in Pompeii in 1797, 
which recalled the discovery of a nude statue of a young man with broken hands and both legs missing. The missing parts were later found and a few weeks later they were transported to the Naples Museum. Now, normally, this nude statue of a young man is identified as the Doriferos now residing in the Naples Archaeological Museum. But the problem is that it is very difficult, if not impossible, to match up our Doriferos with the statue reported in the fine notes, given that we have so little to go on, and thus to state categorically that the Naples Doriferos is indeed the statue that was found in Pompeii. It's a particularly vexed question in relation to the early excavations of the buried towns around the Bay of Naples, which were both less systematic than modern-day excavations and which were often complicated by looters raiding the site or wealthy families who appropriated ancient Roman paintings and sculptures to decorate their homes without recording the original context in which they were found. But I suppose the real question is, Does it really matter if we know where the Doriferos came from? And does it matter if all we have is a copy instead of the original? It has often been argued in the case of art, and particularly in recent years, that it's possible and sometimes essential for art to stand apart from its context, to live up to some sort of objective standard of beauty beyond its original historical time and place. I'm sure Polycletus, with his artistic ideal of the canon, would have agreed. But to a classicist, perhaps one of the most exciting things about ancient objects is the way in which their timelessness, their ability to reach across the ages and to touch us in the here and now, coexists with their deep rootedness in a specific place, a specific time. It's by confronting the paradox of both the contemporary appeal of works of art like the Doriferos and its complex situated history across the Greek and the Roman world and beyond, which, to me, makes studying the ancient world so rewarding. Because through it, we are able not only to learn about ourselves, but to make a connection too to the people who created, handled, marvelled at, copied and collected these objects across thousands of years, from the civilization of the ancient Greeks, through the Empire of the Romans and the collectors of the Renaissance and the Enlightenment, right up until today. Over the next few days on my blog, I'll be continuing through the 5th century BCE, to look at a water clock from an ancient Greek court and a potsherd that bears a remarkable story about one of the greatest Athelian politicians. Or you can come back here next Saturday for a new podcast on the history of the classical world. This podcast series was inspired by the British Museum and Radio 4's A History of the World in 100 Objects. Music was Little Planet, provided by www.bensound.com. For images of the objects described here, as well as daily blog posts and background details on the history of the classical world, follow me on Twitter and Facebook at eHauserWrites and visit www.emilyhauser.com. Uh...